Good morning. Welcome to Tomball Bible. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, last week was Easter Sunday, and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, that He died for our sins, and that He rose again in power over the grave. And we begin a new series we've entitled All Things New. Because when Jesus rose again, he began a work in us. The Bible says that if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, if we believed in his death and resurrection, that God is at work by his spirit, changing and transforming us. And so what we want to do uh, these next few weeks is talk about the things that are new that God has given us when we trust in Jesus Christ. And today we want to talk about something that is foundational to our lives as Christians. And that is the new purpose that we have when we trust in Jesus. You see, the Bible is actually quite clear of what life is like for those who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus isn't risen, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And the idea at play is that if this life is the end of it, If there's nothing beyond today and the pleasures of the day, then let's just go hard after those things. So whatever it is that you want that gives you comfort or pleasure in the moment, if this is the end of it, just do that. Because there's really ultimately no lasting purpose or mission in life. But because Jesus is raised from the dead and because this life isn't the end of it, God has infused every day with mission and purpose for us. And so what we want to do is begin to think big picture about God's mission for his entire people, for everyone who is trusted in Jesus Christ, and then to move kind of down towards some practical things that we can do to understand God's mission for our lives and how we pursue it. So with with that laid out, I'd like us to pray before we get started and just ask God's blessing on our time in his word today. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of infinite goodness, that you have sent your son Jesus to us, that he lived a sinless life and that he died for our sins in our place, taking upon himself the penalty that we deserve. Lord, we thank you that that he declared it is finished, that the debt is paid and that you demonstrated that that was true when you raised him from the grave. And that because of his new life, we have the hope of new life by the power of your spirit for the glory of your son. And we pray that today you would give us clarity and insight regarding how we move forward in light of that. Father, I want to pray for those who are Christians here who are struggling, that you would strengthen them. That you would give them new passion and energy and strength by your spirit. And for those who are here who do not yet know you. For those who have tried to earn your affection through being good or religious activity, or for those who have simply run from you, that today would be the day that they hear the good news of your grace to them through your Son. And that belief in Him is sufficient, and that today would be the day of salvation and the day of new purpose and vision for them. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with the simplest thing, is to understand that God has a purpose and plan for each of our lives. And the way we know that is that we're still here. And so if you're drawing breath this morning, you're doing that because God has given it to you, and it's a blessing from Him, and He does a desire in giving that to you that you would use it. That you would do something in this life that means something more than just the acquisition of goods, the enjoyment of services, and the comforts of the day. That God has a desire and a passion for each of us. And so no matter where we come from, no matter what we've been through, we approach today with the understanding that if we're still here, that God has a mission and purpose for our lives. And so the question for us is, can we discern that? 
Can we understand biblically what that is? And then can we begin to move in faithfulness to that mission? And where I want to begin is the overarching vision that Jesus sets for the church. See, there's a few times in the the life of Jesus and then after his resurrection where he gives particular instructions to the church. And there are other times where he prophesies or speaks prophetically about what the church will do. We call this the prescriptive and prophetic statements related to the church. A prescriptive statement is a command where he says, go and do this. It's very straightforward and simple. There are other times where Jesus speaks prophetically where he says, my church will accomplish this. And so we, we recognize there are both sides of this. And truthfully, a lot of times prophetic statements should be understood as commands. Let me give you an example that you may have heard as a kid where your mom came into your room and said, Skeet, this room will be clean by five o'clock today. Now, mom never claimed to be a prophet, but somehow that generally came true or there were significant consequences. Now, embedded in the statement of what will be is an understanding that that is the directive. And so as we go through these statements, some that prophesy or Jesus predicts what the church will do, very much line up with his command of what the church should do. And so I want to begin with Matthew chapter 28. It is the most significant and lengthy of Jesus' marching orders to the church. And so that's where we'll start. We'll look at a few others this morning quickly. And so again, we're beginning with the overarching mission of the church. And in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus gives what is called the Great Commission to the church, where he sends them out to do their work. A couple things I think are very interesting about this. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, Jesus appears to his disciples several times post his resurrection. Matthew 28 records the only gathering that was by previous appointment. So in every other time after Jesus rises that he appears to his disciples, he just sort of shows up. One day they're fishing and Jesus shows up on the, on the, on the dock and he's calling out to them there from the banks. Another day they're, they're hanging out together and Jesus walks through the door. But in this instance, Jesus gives them a particular place to meet and they go as appointed to the mountain to meet him there. And the instructions he gives the church are recorded in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so I love the way this section of scripture is bookended by promises from Jesus. The first thing we see is that Jesus has all authority and power over all creation. And then he gives us a, a work to be done. And then he says, but I'm with you. And so as we jump into this, I want you to, to recognize that the promise is that the one who has all authority and power is with us and will not walk away from us, that he will never leave or forsake us. And I think you need to kind of tuck that idea under your arm as we begin to talk about what the mission is to know that we go forward with the presence and power of Jesus, not our own, but the presence and power of the one who holds all authority over heaven and earth. And so Jesus gives this directive and here's what he tells them, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. There's four kind of verbs or action words in this command. He says, go, which is usually the one when we use this text we have focused on. And generally, if you hear Matthew 28 preach, we're, we're trying to rally the troops towards some global mission initiative, which is good and important. It's very important to us. In fact, if you were to look at Tomball Bible Church's mission statement, we say it this way, Tomball Bible Church exists to glorify Christ 
by making mature disciples to reach the nations. And so embedded in what we do is an understanding that we go to the nations and that that every people group on the planet should hear the good news of Jesus, that he is the only son of God who died for our sins and rose again, and that faith in him is the only means of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Everyone under heaven should hear that. But that's not the primary command. In fact, if we were reading this in Greek, you'd find that the only of the four words to go baptize, to go make disciples, teach and baptize is to make disciples. It's the central command of the text. And so what we have is this idea of as you're going through life, you're going to do something. And the command is that you make disciples. And you're going to do that. What does that mean to make disciples? Well, it's twofold. He says, one, you're going to baptize them, which means people are going to hear the good news of Jesus and salvation and forgiveness of sin in him. And they're going to believe. And at the moment of belief, you're going to baptize them. We're going to celebrate that in a moment today where someone is trusted in Jesus, made a step of faith. And upon that step of faith, they're baptized as a first step of obedience in their walk with Jesus. One of the reasons that we do this is that the way we do is because baptism in the New Testament is always something that follows belief. So you make disciples, someone becomes a follower of Jesus at that moment, then they become baptized. And at that point, we begin the process of developing into spiritual maturity, where he says, teach him to obey all that I've commanded. And so disciple making is evangelism or sharing the good news about Jesus, but it's also helping people grow into maturity and faithfulness so that they're obedient and so that they grow and make other disciples. And so this is the central command for the church to make disciples of all nations. It's not the only time that Jesus gives commands to the church. You're going to find this again in the gospel of Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Jesus gives a very short and simple command. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now, after that, we're going to see several statements from Jesus where he says, this is what the church will do. So we just saw him say what the church should do. And now we're going to see a prophetic statement about what she will accomplish. And you're going to see the first one in in Luke chapter 24, verse 46. He said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14, you have a similar command. Now, this prophetic statement doesn't get anyone excited on the front end. I just want to tell you that right now. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And all God's people said... Wait a minute. That's what they said. Now, verse 14, it continues the prophetic statement. He said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now, there's more prophetic statements as we continue in John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus talks about that the church wouldn't just be comprised of people from a Jewish background, as his followers were, but would be reaching out to the non-Jewish world as well. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice, and so there will be one flock. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus prophesies of the triumphant church in verse 18. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And finally, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, just before Jesus ascends to the father, he says, you will receive power when the spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And, and so I want to just step back from these and, and I'll tell you why these statements. See, see, there's a lot of places we could go in the Bible to begin to ask what's the church supposed to do. But the words of Jesus related to the church are the most significant. And the reason I say that is Jesus is laying out very simple marching orders. The book of Acts is going to record the history of the church pursuing those marching orders. And the letters from the apostles are going to be coaching the church in how they ought to go about this as they deal with difficulty. But the simplest, most direct commands from Jesus are the most significant for us because of their simplicity and straightforwardness. Now, as you step away from these verses we just read, I want to point out kind of three central themes that you find here. The first is the glory of Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus has all authority and power. It's all been given to him. And that to all nations are supposed to hear the good news that he is the only son of God who rose again in power and glory. And that all of creation will hear the gospel proclaimed. And so you get this idea that the good news of Jesus, that he alone is Lord and that he alone can save, should spread like wildfire across the world because all authority and honor belongs to him. And so Jesus is supreme over all things. And so number one in all of our hearts needs to be the glory of Jesus. Not us. Not our organization, not our fame, not our reputation, but Jesus and Jesus alone. Secondly, you're going to see a mission to make disciples. You're going to be told to proclaim the good news, to make disciples. It's said in a number of ways, but we are supposed to interact and engage with other people in such a way that they become faithful followers of Jesus. This involves preaching the gospel or evangelism, people who didn't believe in Jesus coming to believe in Jesus and those that do growing to maturity and fruitfulness and usefulness for the mission. All of that is laid out. We're to make disciples. And then the last of the three is the nations. Is that you can't read these texts honestly and not see that God has a global vision for the church. In fact, of the seven that we just read, only one doesn't mention the nations. And that's the prophecy of a triumphant church. This just says the gates of hell will not prevail against them. All of the others point you in some way to the reality that all of creation, that all people groups, that all nations should hear the good news. And so we're committed as a church to that. And so if you look at these three themes that you can see here, you, you kind of see what we did is we put together the purpose statement of our church. We said Tomball Bible Church exists to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. And essentially what we did is we read the Bible and then we lifted some phrases out of it and we put it together. We should have put footnotes in there to make it clean for you. We didn't want to get overly creative. We didn't want to say things like Tomball Bible Church is a group of people floating the rapids of life. We didn't want to... I don't even know what that means. Um, and so we just wanted to be very simple, very direct, and, and, and to be honest, very biblical. Because this is what God has laid in front of us. Now, now, this is where sometimes we let things stop prematurely. Is we tend to think about the church in an organizational form. Right? The church is a place that we go to. It's a club or a group that I might be a part of. And so some of you probably did this this morning. I know we did. We got up a little earlier than normal because today is church day. We got dressed for church. We got in the car and we came to church. And what we reveal in that is while we understand that, that's what we're doing here. That's that's why we came. Um, it's easy for us to make the church a place, a program, and an organization. And in doing so, shrug the personal responsibility that every Christian has. See, the church isn't primarily an organizational reality as much as it is the people of God who've been redeemed by Jesus. 
And so there are biblical commands for how the church should be structured, and we, we try to follow all of those. But, but the larger depiction of the church is simply as the children or people of God. And so every Christian is ultimately a member of the church in a larger sense. And then they have the responsibility of joining in membership to a church at the local level so that the ministry of the word and teaching and cooperation as we take the mission of Christ to the nations works. But we begin with this understanding that we're the people of God. I want to show you just a few scriptures that really highlight this. One is in 1 Peter chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Peter. I appreciate that. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want you to think about the language that he uses to describe the church. He doesn't say you are an organization, a structure, a building, a location. He says you are a people. You are the people of God called to God for a purpose. For a purpose. When you think about the very word that we translate into church, church isn't a Greek word, that's English. The Greek word is ekklesia, which literally means called out assembly. It doesn't refer to location, structures, and organization. It refers to people. So that we need to understand that the church, it doesn't stop when this service ends. And so, you know, promptly at like 12.10, 12.15, we're going to say amen and you're going to leave. But church didn't end. You're going to go get in your car, but here's the problem, because, because you're part of the church, the church is going to go with you. So you can't escape this reality by thinking, okay, Sunday service is over, we're out, we go back to church next week, or maybe Wednesday night, small group. You are part of the people of God. If you have believed that Jesus is the only Son of God who died for your sins and who rose again, if you have believed that, you're part of the church of Jesus Christ. So there, there's no escape hatch. We don't exit church at some point. Now, it is important for us to gather. We can't take that and then walk away and go, see, I, I never leave church, so I don't even have to go to church. That's, that's not what the Bible's saying. We're to gather together for the ministry of the word, for encouragement and accountability and discipleship. All of that's an important piece of what we do. But it's an integrated reality. It's not separate from life. It is part of life and cannot be removed for those of us who belong to Jesus Because of that, the mission of the church is not an organizational mission first and occasionally my personal mission. It is the reason for which I've been saved. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians with me real quickly in chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, I want to unpack what the Apostle Paul just said. What he tells us first is that we needed to be reconciled to God, which is to say that because of our sin, we were distant and foreign from him. We did not know him as father. We did not walk with him. We did not have desire to please him because of that. Our destiny at the end of this life would be eternal separation from him in hell. That's the plain teaching of the Bible. But that God, through Jesus, made a means of addressing that and reconciling us to him. 
He sent his only son who died for our sins and rose again. And through faith in him, he reconciled us. He brought us near, no longer counting our sins against us. So we've been forgiven entirely, completely, based solely on the work of Jesus. This isn't Jesus plus me being good. Jesus plus me going to church enough. Jesus plus me having some ceremonial things done. That's not what he said. He says you've been reconciled through Christ. That is the beginning and the end of our salvation is the work of Jesus and our belief in him. That, that's what this is about. Now, if that has happened for you, something else has happened to you. You've been given a ministry of reconciliation. You notice this, that everyone who's been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus now has been given and commissioned with the mission to take that reconciliation to other people. So it's not a collective thing. We go, well, that's the church's job. And we'll let the elders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, and deacons worry about it. And I'll just go about daily life. No, that's the church's job as in you and me and everyone else who's been redeemed by Jesus. And every one of us has been empowered and called by God and gifted by His Spirit to be ambassadors for Christ and carry on the ministry of reconciliation. So what's the mission for your life? I don't know exactly how it plays out in every instance, but let me tell you what we just saw in the scripture is that you are to be a part of making disciples of Jesus, carrying out that ministry of reconciliation with God. That that's not just something that the church owns, that's something that we all have, and every one of us who has been redeemed, who has placed our faith in Jesus, has been given that life's mission, without exception. And we go go into that difficulty with this, the promise that Jesus has all power and authority and that he's with us. The promise of Acts 1-8, that the spirit of God will come and you'll have power to fulfill this mission. So we don't go under our own strength or our own authority. God not only gave us the mission, but he gave us the means to complete it. And we have the promise that ultimately the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the way, we're going to win. So with that laid out, I want to do something because I have a fear that many of us will think about this global vision for the church reaching every nation and people group and will begin to backtrack and go, I live in Tomball, Texas. How's that real? I mean, most of us, tomorrow morning, we're going to get up, we're going to get dressed, we're going to get in a car, we're going to go to work. And when the day's over, we're going to get a car and we're going to drive home. And there's dinner to be prepared, there's kids to be fed, there's homework to be done, there's kids to shuttle back and forth to practice. There's life. And in the midst of life, how do I make time to hop on a plane and fly to some unreached people group? I'm trying to sort that out. So how does that work? Now, we believe that that, that there's an absolute need for the church to send cross-cultural missionaries to other people groups who've never heard the gospel. We support that. A significant piece of our efforts, prayers, and budget goes to those tasks. So we believe in that wholeheartedly. We don't believe that only that select few is a part of this mission. And so I want to walk through biblically with the church in Thessalonica how each day, everyday life connects to the nations hearing the good news of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to walk backwards with me in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. So when the Apostle Paul writes this letter to this church that he loves, he spent time with them, he started this church, he, he led them to faith in Jesus, he's baptized these folks, he, he loves them dearly. He sits down and, and he, he's writing something, and the thought that enters his mind, led by the Spirit of God, is my life really counts, it really means something if. It really means something if. If, and I want you to see this little verse that is so significant in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, for now we 
live if you are standing fast in the Lord. The Apostle Paul says his life really matters. It really counts. He says, I've really lived. If these people who I've loved, who I've cared for, who have taught the word of God, who, who I've gone through life with, if they stand fast. And I want you to backtrack with me in chapter 2, verse 8, to see why it is that they mean so much to the Apostle Paul. And in the midst of this, I want you to see a pattern for your life in fulfilling the mission God's given you. Chapter 2, verse 8. He said, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So when Paul looks back on the church in Thessalonica, he says, we loved you so much that we not only gave you the word of God, the testimony that Jesus was the only son of God who died and rose again, and that salvation was found through faith and faith alone in him. So we gave you that, but we gave you ourselves. Paul says, we work side by side with you. You saw our manner of living. There was nothing hidden from you. You know us. And we poured ourselves out in service to you. And Paul gives us this powerful thing. One, we realize his care and his love for these people. We also see a very simple pattern for how disciples are made and how you and I can get plugged into that amazing ministry. It's simple. It's the sharing of the truth of Jesus combined with the sharing of the truth of our lives. It's truth and life brought together. It's not just teaching the words of God or proclaiming them, although that can be helpful. People can be saved. People can grow. But the diminished returns in that approach to ministry. That, that's why we don't focus all of our energy on this weekend gathering. That's why we put together study guides for you to take what you're hearing here, jump into a small group. That's why we have women's ministry, men's ministry. That's why we have student ministry, because we recognize that there's a significant element of ministry and life transformation that happens when life comes together with teaching. That when you begin to see what it looks like to walk faithfully with Jesus, it's much easier to walk faithfully with Jesus because you've got a model and a pattern set for you. And that when people know you and their struggles, they can encourage you. There can be accountability and there's prayer. Some of that's messy and difficult and sometimes we don't want that. But the Bible lays out a pattern for life transformation and it's truth and life. And so that's a, it's exciting because each one of us, empowered by the Spirit of God, can do that. We can invite people to walk with us as we walk with Jesus and we can share with them what we're learning and what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul does that. It's motivated by love for them. Now he goes backwards and I want you to see, so Paul's got this ministry with this Thessalonian church and he loves them dearly and he says, man, if you guys are faithful, then our lives really counted because we gave you our lives. We gave you everything. We've invested in you and so we, we want to see a dividend. But I want you to see more than that how the ministry that Paul had with this ragtag bunch of Christians in, in one city has a broader impact for us. And, and, and you'll see that as we walk backwards in chapter 1. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, you're going to see the testimony of the Thessalonian Christians. It says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word with much afflictions, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth 
everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come so so think about what he just said he said guys the whole Roman world has heard about Jesus because of your lives. He says, not just Macedonia and Achaia, not just regional kind of Twitter, but, but all over the known world, things are abuzz with what happened here because you Thessalonian Christians, he says, you guys, you heard the good news of Jesus and you stopped worshiping idols. You turned to the one true God and waited and hoped for his return, believing in the power of the resurrection. And you did this with joy and in much affliction. And how they learned to do that? Well, they, they says you were imitators of us. So they, they saw Paul's way of life and they followed it as he followed Jesus and they became imitators of it. And the, the, the recognition of what had happened there spread throughout the world. So I want you to see how the dots connect with daily life in Tomball and the global vision of the church because Paul just kind of painted the picture for us. He says, because of the investment that Paul had in the church and Thessalonica, and because of the faithfulness and hardship of the Thessalonian Christians, the gospel spread regionally and throughout the Roman world as a testimony of the faithfulness of these Christians. And I want to just put on the table that it was in the midst of affliction. But what you do and how you invest in the life of another person has an exponential change that you don't even see. You don't know what's going to happen when one domino falls and how everything else lays out. But when you invest deeply with the truth of the gospel and the truth of your life as you follow Jesus into someone else, it's a transformative reality. And if that person is transformed, then every other person they interact with, there's the potential of transformation. So through you interacting with people here and now, you have the opportunity not just to have an impact here, but everywhere else they will go. And I think Houston is an exciting city to be thinking about the global movement of discipleship. It is the most diverse city in terms of international population of any city in the United States. People from all over the world have flocked to Houston. More than that, many of you guys work in oil and gas, which takes you into other countries, many countries where the gospel is not allowed to be preached. You have friends and family and people there. And as you interact and minister just in relationships, your opportunity to reach the nations grows. One of the things that blew me away in the last month that we found is we've been doing uh, some video work so that people can hear uh, the sermons and, and catch the content of what's going on here outside of our walls. Is that as we track through our hosting site where the downloads come from, we've been blown away. The majority, you could guess, came from the United States. But, but there are downloads and people watching teaching content from Tomball Bible Church on every continent except for Antarctica. And we don't have a device that penguins can operate yet. When they discover that, we're going to drop some and we'll see what happens. Think about that. Did you know the number two place that sermon content from Tomball Bible Church is downloaded and viewed is Vietnam? Vietnam. China's on the table there, a place where for me to go preach the gospel like we're doing now would be dangerous, not only for me, but for those who gather. India, Nepal. It's amazing to see. Now, now that's just technology, but it's an, it's an impact of, of how relationships work. Because we're not, we're not paying big money to advertise that in China. What's happening is people are watching it and sharing it and watching it and sharing it. And you see this connected web of people across the continents. Because through relationships, truth travels. 
And because people travel, the truth goes with them. And so there's a a need, and we don't want to back away at all from the need to send long-term cross-cultural missionaries, but they're not the only people that get to be in the game. And you may not know today how your impact in someone else's life is going to change things. I got the chance to pray with a sweet woman in our church right now who, who serves so faithfully, caring for and caring for and ministering to some folks, and it's difficult. And one of the things I'm always reminded of is that we'll never know the impact of what this lady is doing right now in the lives of those people. She may never see it this side of heaven, but, but there will be a day that I think she gets recognition where she understands what the Lord has done through her. And I want you to see in 1 Thessalonians this, this little snippet that, that helps us remember that. Where Paul has this immense confidence before Jesus on the day that he stands. And, and you're going to find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So I I want you to think about this. Every one of us is going to stand someday before Jesus. And we're going to give an account of our lives. And it's going to be something to this effect. What did you do with what you were given? And now this is something that happens for believers, for those who are redeemed, who are forgiven, who will enter into the kingdom. But there will be an accounting. And the Apostle Paul could have said a number of things as he stands before Jesus. He could talk about all the churches he planted. He could talk about the suffering he endured and he didn't recant. He could talk about that time in Lystra where he was drug out of the city in stone. They thought he was dead and he was not. And he got up and preached the next day. He could talk about that story. He could say, I wrote two thirds of the letters of the New Testament. Well, what does Paul say? What's his joy, his boast, his crown before Jesus on the day that he is to make an account for his life? He said, it's this ragtag bunch of Christians in Thessalonica. He said, that's who I'm giving. That's who I'm presenting as my joy and crown. And I believe for each of us, there's the opportunity on that day when we stand before Jesus. And Jesus says, what did you invest your life in? Not to say systems, processes, organizations, but the people that we poured our hearts and lives and the truth of God into. And to stand with confidence before God. Because why? We really live if they're standing fast in the truth. And, and so as you think about, okay, why am I here? Why, why has God saved me? All this, I want to answer it very simply. That God has saved you and made you his own so that he could use you in doing the same for someone else. So he could use you in sharing that ministry of reconciliation. To help people walking to maturity and fruitfulness. That all of that. It's about the people that our lives are invested in. That that is where we'll find hope. That is where we'll find confidence before God. And that is the mission of every Christian. This isn't something for a select few. Well, I'm not gifted in that. No, the Spirit of God is alive and active in you. He's empowered you. He's with you. He has all authority. You can go. You can go. Now, now, I get that there's a lot of what-ifs when we go into this. I mean, you could talk about Jesus to someone. It could go really bad. I've been there. Sometimes it was an offense that they had to the gospel. Sometimes it was me. But, but it could go bad. So let me encourage you as you start to get over that, that kind of that, that, that trepidation to beginning that. Because we live in a world where spiritual conversations are abnormal. It's on the list of small list of things that we don't talk about in polite company. And so uh, here's one very simple to begin to get you comfortable with talking about the Lord with other people. Is this week to talk to people who are absolutely safe about Jesus. Outside of a church gathering or a Bible study to have a conversation with someone that is a Christian. It could be your mama. I don't care. 
but to begin talking to other people about the Lord so that you begin to get over that fright of saying anything about him at all. And then begin to take a step. I believe God has placed people in every one of our paths who he has dropped there that we might have an impact for the kingdom, that we could share the gospel so they might receive salvation having believed in Jesus so that we could encourage them if they're struggling so that we can help strengthen them if they're weak but that God has placed people in our path to be able to do that the question is are we going to try to step out and move now I understand the list of what ifs I mean, what what if it goes badly what if you you share the gospel with someone at the office and they get offended and they call the boss and HR fires you what what is God still God when that happens that's that's the question I mean, what if my neighbor looks at me like a weirdo because I talked to them about Jesus and wanted to pray for them? Uh, what if uh, my kid thinks I'm crazy because we're going to church now? What if, what if, what, what if I mess it up? What if they get really close to me and they realize I'm a mess too? What if? And one of the things I, I think we've got to, 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 to recognize is that in the midst of all these fears about the future, God has given us a gift to remember his faithfulness. I'm not saying any, all those fears are unfounded. I'm saying God is faithful in the midst of them. And the way we know that is he's proven it. He sent his only son to die for us. What more could he do to demonstrate that he loves us? And he raised him back from the dead. What more could he do to prove that he's mighty? And so we've been commanded to remember. In 1 Corinthians 11, the scriptures tell us that... that On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and blessed it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the meal, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. Each time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul adds to that the reality that each time we partake of the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in the midst of this time of remembrance, it's not just to look back as some nostalgic moment. It's intended to strengthen us so that we can walk faithfully today. So that the risk of following Jesus is something that we're willing to take because we trust him, because we remember his faithfulness in the past. We remember that he's good. We remember that he loves us. We remember that he has all authority. And so we move forward. Let this time of remembrance strengthen you. Let it remind you of the God who loved you so much he sent his only son to die for you. Let it remind you of the God who raised him from the grave and gave him all authority and power and the promise that he'd never leave us. I want to ask the gentlemen that are helping if you would come forward.